Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today we're joined by special guest, writer and director Prano Bailey Bond. Hello Prano! Hello, thanks for having me. We love all things under 90 minutes on this podcast and as well as your choice for our festival, you've actually just made a film which is 84 minutes long. Brand new film Censor, which is in cinemas right now. I love this film, Prano. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. <laughs> I'm, I'm such a nerd when it comes to film releases. I'm looking through the schedule saying like, how long is that one? And uh, I sort of, with a red pen, circle all of the under 90 minute ones. So I was so excited to see this film at the Sundance Festival earlier this year. But what was it like from your side to actually get a film in Sundance, uh, in Sundance, Utah, in Park City? Well, I mean, I never went to Utah because of the year we're in. But uh, putting that aside, I mean, it's been amazing. It's... Um, it's what you kind of dream of when you're making a film, but you don't know what the destiny is going to be. So you have all the, you know, ups and downs of actually making the film and then you send it off to a festival to view. And when they watched Sensor, we'd locked picture and we'd just done some sound work, but it wasn't finished. It wasn't, you know, all the music wasn't finished. Uh, the sound design wasn't finished. The colour grade wasn't in there. And you're just thinking, you know, are they going to be able to you know, see the film and obviously they are used to watching films like this and then you're just keeping your fingers crossed that they say yes and and obviously they did but I actually don't think I realised when we got that call how big a deal it would end up being. Um, You know, I think it kind of surpassed my expectations of what getting into Sundance meant for a film and particularly because we got the opening slot of the midnight section Then there's the kind of worry of right now that the festival was remote because obviously because of the pandemic, it couldn't happen physically. And then you're thinking, well, people are going to be watching it on their televisions and their laptops and you've designed it to be watched in a cinema space. And is that going to affect, you know, the the viewing experience and all of those kind of worries, I guess. And then there's... um, you know, I'm not going to feel the audience's reaction in the room and what if people are horrible about it on Twitter <laughs> and all those all those worries, which went, you know, completely dissolved after the screening. Twitter was actually a really lovely place to be and people were so vocal and responsive about their love for the film and, you know, it really helped because you're in your little box on the other side of the world. So it actually felt like we were connecting with our audience. So it was a really amazing experience and Sundance have continued to be very supportive of the film and of of us as a team. Where did Sensor begin for you? I guess we're talking at sort of the end of the, the journey now, having its world premiere and, you know, the fact that it's in cinemas right now. But but where did it begin for you? What was the sort of spark that started Sensor? Yeah, I remember the exact moment. I was sitting on a plane 
which makes me sound so glamorous, but <laughs> just happened to be sitting. I was flying across the world. I was sitting on a plane and I was reading a, a magazine about horror films, as you do. And uh, there was an article about the Hammer Horror era. And there was a little note in there about uh, the way that film censors were watching films during that period. And there was a detail that piqued my interest in censorship, I guess, which was that during the Hammer era, one of the only kind of rules they had was that blood on the breast of a woman would be cut from any film because they believed blood on the breast would make men likely to commit rape. And I just thought, well, weren't most of the film censors male and started to think about a very kind of silly idea that was to do with a male film censor who, who sort of went on a date and his dates built jam down her top and he starts to worry that he's going to do something terrible to her and it was all it was very silly but I guess through that silly idea I I became quite interested in censorship through the ages in the UK so I I was reading you know books about how the BBFC worked during the 1930s and um, you know all the decades and really felt that I wanted to tell a story about a film censor I quickly landed in the video nasty era because I'm a child of the 80s and just felt like this was such a rich and fascinating period to set the film. And particularly because by that point, I really wanted to explore the idea of a censor who perhaps deep down felt they were bad in some way, that they were, uh, you know, evil or rotten inside and that they were dealing with something you know, deep and dark within themselves. And I kind of felt like that was being reflected somehow in the 80s around what happened in, you know, surrounding video nasties, that almost, you know, there's one way of looking at that period that if you take it seriously, that, you know, that the press or the government or society thought that we were all, you know, deep down immoral and that we're kind of one Lucio Fulci film away from grabbing the scissors on our desk and stabbing somebody to death. And I, I find that really interesting that, that these moments in history where there's been a new piece of technology created or a form of art that we think is gonna, you know, unleash the inner demon within us all. Um, and I, I really was quite excited about unpicking that a bit, but within a kind of character study. When you were writing the film, you talk about how much research you, you had to put into this. And I think that's really clear when you watch it. You know, this is a film that's made with a lot of knowledge and a lot of love uh, for that period. But were you, were you thinking about back then, you know, how long this film should be? Because it comes in uh, a beautiful 84 minutes long. I imagine you had to leave a lot of stuff out to, to get it to that length. It's a funny one. I don't think I was massively thinking about it when we were writing but I like films that are around the 90 minute mark personally I don't think films need to be two hours plus long but also you know for me as a as a filmmaker in the kind of practical sense the more I write the more I have to fit into the same amount of time in terms of what we shoot so you know, I know friends who've kind of got 110 page scripts and they've gone out and they've had the same five week period as I have to shoot the, uh, I don't know what the final script came in at, but but um, it, it, it's interesting because I worked with my editor on Sensor is called Mark Towns 
And every film he's cut, every feature film he's cut has come in under 90 minutes. So I was working in post with somebody who is kind of religious about things not being over 90 minutes. And we both were of the attitude that you keep it under 90 minutes, you make it as long as the film needs to be. When we got in touch uh, with you, Prano, about doing this podcast, I asked you to think of a film that was under 90 minutes long. When you're you know, a, a film viewer, I guess on the other side of the, the, the business, you know, being a consumer of films, do you ever think of a, a film's runtime when you're, say, looking at cinema listings or, or what to watch on a streaming service? I don't tend to do it when I'm going to the cinema, interestingly. It does, unless it's like a really late viewing and I'm thinking will I be able to get home after this? Um, but when I'm watching things uh, at home, I do tend to look at the runtime and I will think about how that's going to slot into my evening. And I love it when something is around 90 minutes or under. I think you're right. At home, there's a, you, time is different, I suppose. You sort of think it's not like if you're going to the cinema, it's a night out, you know, it's, it's part of the package, traveling to the cinema and all that sort of business. But I'm always thinking, what can I do after the film? You know, if I choose a 90 minute film, I could probably watch two films tonight. Hooray. Or I exactly. can make some dinner or watch an episode of Frasier or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I don't, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of films that I love that are over 90 minutes. So I'm not like anti that, but yeah, it's more convenient, which is not, you know, my number one thing when it comes to film watching, the convenience. But again, in the cinema, it's a different experience. Like I want to get swept away into a story and I don't mind so much about the length in the cinema. And when I when 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 we started talking, did you did you have a film in mind, or did you have to you know sort of uh, do a bit of research yourself? No, I, I think this film came to mind instantly. I don't think I even thought about any other films. <laughs> it was just this one. I love someone who knows who has a film in mind right away. What film did you did you choose for us today, Prano? So I chose Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Released from an institution after suffering a nervous breakdown, Jessica, Zora Lampert, The Exorcist Part 3, seeks the tranquility of a secluded home in, the, in Connecticut to help her recovery complete. But instead of a restful recuperation with her husband and close friend in the New England countryside, Jessica soon finds herself falling into a swirling vortex of madness and the supernatural. And an even more unsettling discovery is that the entire region seems to be under the influence of a mysterious woman who has been living in the supposedly empty house. Uh, Let's Get Jessica's Death, released in 1971, uh, an American horror film co-written and directed by John Hancock uh, in his directorial debut. Uh, we mentioned it stars Zora Lampert, also stars Barton Heyman, Gretchen Corbett and Mary Claire Costello. I think it's a good film to go into not knowing so much about. I, I, I watched it purely off your recommendation uh, without reading anything about it. And then I, because I hadn't seen this before, I love discovering films on the show. Uh, so you got to me to watch this film for the first time, which was fantastic. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, um, I'd agree with that, actually. Not knowing too much about it is probably a good way to go in. So if you haven't seen it yet, I think anyone listening should pause here 
watch it and then come back. It's very easy. I rented it on on Apple Movies. I'm sure it's on other streaming services as well. Um, I think for a while this film was actually, you know, like in the video Nasty era, a lot of those films were were banned or just had bad distribution deals. And, and this film didn't have a DVD release until quite recently. Um, so it's now more readily available than it was, you know, sort of say in the 90s or early noughties. It was really interesting, actually, kind of going back and thinking about this film, because as you say, it was released in 1971. So and it was released in August. August the 27th, 1971. So it's weirdly like a 50 year anniversary of this of this movie, which I hadn't really thought about. And I've been shouting about it a lot whenever anybody asks me for recommendations for films from the past, horror films from the past sort of within like the context of censor. Even though this is not a video nasty, I always recommend Let's Get Jessica to Death. So I don't know. There's something serendipitous about that. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't realize. I've seen. Um, you know, this is the same year that Duel came out. Steven Spielberg's Duel. That's had a big 50th anniversary Blu-ray home entertainment release. But where's the the treatment for Let's Go Jessica to Death? Exactly. Come on, guys. Yeah, <laughs> come on. We need a campaign. I'm going to start a campaign. This is it. <laughs> So you mentioned, you know, you've been recommending this film uh, when talking about censor, but do you remember when you first watched this movie? I do, actually. I was very, very lucky to see this film for the first time in NFT1 at the BFI South Bank. And um, it was introduced by Kim Newman, who's a friend of mine. And he said he, I, I think he might have even invited me to the screening because he said, I'm introducing this film. And he knew that I hadn't seen it and he said, you, you're going to love it. You have to see it. So I went in and I remember some of my kind of horror fanatic friends who had booked as well because they knew about the film. And I was just completely drawn in by the eerie tone of, of the movie. And yeah, felt really, really lucky, really fortunate to get to see it on such a big, brilliant cinema screen for the first time. Do you remember what, what stuck with you? Because uh, you know, clearly it's had an impact on, you know, mentioning it with your current work now. The, the atmosphere, certainly, the sort of haunting tone of this film. The thing that really strikes me about Let's Go Jessica to Death is the central performance by Zora Lampert. I think it's one of my favourite performances in a horror film she's so fragile and vulnerable and um also very good-natured there's something so so truthful about her performance and this tentative line that the film um sort of plays around of whether is she mad you know or um is there something supernatural going on but but the fact that she is worrying about that all the way through the film just makes her character all the more compelling and um, sympathetic. We're kind of set up right at the start of the film, knowing that Jessica has just come out of six months in a kind of mental rehabilitation centre. And there's a lot of concern around her relapsing. And I just think that that's such a brilliant sort of psychological setup for a supernatural horror film. And we're really, really placed in her point of view in such, a, in such an effective way as well. And, and so that's the thing for me, it's just her. And I'm so shocked that she didn't kind of come out of this film and become a huge star. I'd never seen her in anything else until I saw this film and obviously she's been in lots of other things but 
uh, it felt like, I don't think she ever kind of majorly broke through. No, fully agree. I was blown away by by her performance. It's a, it's a gift of a character as well. I think that un, unreliable narrator type character at the heart of a film always is really good for audience engagement. And and I think she, you know, she, she plays a lot of, there's a lot of nuance in her performance because that character has to convey quite a lot, you know, what's going on on the surface, what's going on underneath, what's going, what she's thinking. I think the film does a really good job of actually, you know, giving you her internal narration as well I really like that addition yeah when I first saw it I remember thinking oh this is very dated the VO but it really really works and you get that internal narration but also one of the things that really stays with me in her performance is the first noise she makes when you know not, not outside of the VO basically outside of the voiceover and it's when she sees the what turns out to be the mute girl in the graveyard and she turns back to her partner and she just goes "Ah." and it's so effective and haunting and weird because it's not a noise it's like there's something really sort of I don't know that that always really got to me just this kind of "Ah," noise that's (laughs) I don't know it's something very disturbing about about that but at the same time you do have this voiceover and you're kind of let into her vulnerabilities um you're let into her feelings of inadequacy she's in a really really uh, horrible position basically in terms of the doubt surrounding her sanity she's undermined in terms of what she sees and thinks is real or not real and and the way that that's kind of played out in the voiceover so we have these kind of moments where we see her see something and we see it as the audience and then we hear her kind of haunting whispering voiceover saying don't tell them you know don't 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 let them see they won't understand they think they'll think I'm crazy and it's down to Zora Lampert that that's so effective and obviously the director John Hancock and they'd work together uh, in theatre actually beforehand so I think he'd worked with most of the cast because even though this was his debut um, he directed quite a bit of theatre and had worked with Zora Lampert and apparently she stayed in character throughout the, the shoot as well which is very interesting I mean it's obvious that they did a lot of character work just because her performance is so truthful it never falters no, I fully agree. And it leaves such a big impact. And I'm, yeah, I mean, it's uh, not surprised to hear, you know, sort of talk about the amount of work that goes into creating this performance, because it, you know, it really gets under your skin, this performance. You know, I, I, after I finished the film last night, I just wanted to read about it, find out more, you know, find out about the process, find out about what went into the script. And I think that's testament of a good film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, he rewrote the script, the director, John Hancock. He was offered up the script and then he took it on and rewrote it. And it was quite interesting because I'd read that um, he was told to keep in certain scenes from the original the original script. And one of those scenes was that the mute girl was one element he had to keep in. And the other scene that he mentioned was the seance, which he said he didn't think made sense to the story. But I actually think it's a really effective scene because and also you're seeing you're seeing Jessica's I guess warmth and kindness weirdly in that moment the way she's inviting the spirits in there's this sadness to her but also this kind of care uh, you know this care and warmth and consideration towards these 
these these spirits that might be kind of in the house and and there's definitely something incredibly eerie about that i'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house jessica i'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house presents let's scare jessica to death dreams or nightmares madness or sanity i don't know which is which let's scare jessica to death I think they're, they're really they're, all of the main characters are quite refreshing because they they constantly surprised me. Like the, I mean, just driving around in a hearse—that's such a fun detail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and their comment when um you know the, the the town they arrive in, as is tradition with films from this era. I think when a young you know sort of group of people arrive in, the older people don't like them, you know, and and we sort of learn why. But um and and I love his comment, uh, the husband's comment, saying you know it's cheaper than a station wagon as they drive off as everybody's looking at the hearse. Um, but when they show up at the house, finally, you know, it's creepy and they just bought this house and there's someone already living there. And the fact that they welcome her into the family and let her stay, uh, you know, it, it, it just keeps you on your toes. This, you know, It isn't following a traditional narrative, uh, I don't think, which makes it still at 50 years old feel incredibly fresh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's so true. I mean, there's there's people that kind of analyse that Hearst in terms of the idea that it was like the death of like the hippie dream <laughs> that hippies weren't being you know appreciated in exactly the, the way that they intended that their message maybe was not coming across more widely and this idea that that they arrive in this hearst is is it's funny and it's striking visually as well and it's got this sort of element of doom about it too i think yeah it sort of shows these characters are kind of unfazed by bad luck or tradition maybe but i guess what befalls their characters actually might be more in line with with some of these uh, it's like Chekhov's hearse at the beginning of the film absolutely but yeah there's so the house when they arrive at that house is just so hauntingly beautiful that image as they kind of tilt up from the car and that image really stays with me and um, it's funny because sometimes i'll watch the film and i'll be like oh yes that house is from let's get jessica to death because it seems to have like imprinted on my mind as like you know the kind of the, the like peak image of a of a spooky spooky house <laughs> you're right it's your go-to haunted house sort of house but the haunting is it, you know the haunting there's lots of little um, hints and signs in terms of, you know, when you when you rewatch the film for a second time, I think you start to see those signs in terms of the woman that they find squatting this house. When they ask her, for example, how long have you been here? And she says, oh, ages, you know, <laughs> and then you slowly start to think, OK, ages, meaning what centuries? <laughs> like, how long has she really been here? It's a very uh, kind of neat unique way into a haunting and in terms of also the way that this film was like I don't know quite fresh for its time I read and I don't want to say that this is fact because I read it on the internet but that this was the first horror film to use a synthesizer in its score which obviously became such a kind of big part of of horror scores going going forward but I guess 1971 maybe that makes sense think they'd used it as like a temp piece of music and, and then ended up thinking let's keep it so I think that's quite interesting especially when you think that it hasn't really it didn't get 
brilliantly received at the time and hasn't necessarily I don't think it's you know been celebrated enough as a film and yeah it was doing quite a lot of fresh things i think it always happens doesn't it you know as people people sort of crib uh from something uh earlier and and maybe you know the synth score became famous uh with a few you know a few films later and people would cite that as their their influence but you're totally right i didn't even think about you know actually how closely associated horror and synth uh, scores are but a, a few on, on this podcast in fact mark jenkin uh director mark jenkin chose the shout which has an incredible synthesized score um and that was made you know in the mid 70s so a few years after this and the score in this particular film I, I often I I find myself just thinking about the score and I was doing that quite a few times and I was like oh this is really good oh I love this track and towards the end when it sort of ramps up into a more traditional horror score it was so effective yeah it's weird isn't it because actually the music at the front of the film is very pretty and light and you know even the visuals at the front of the film it's like a sunset and it's got this sort of twinkly pretty music over it but it's her voiceover and sound design of this kind of constant like eerie wind that kind of sort of sits underneath the film that really unsettles you so it's quite kind of juxtaposing this sort of sweet story about them getting Jessica out of the rehabilitation center and they go to move to their new house but you can feel that something bad's going to happen and there's the traditional warning of that as well on the boat as they cross over the river and they, they say which house they're going to and they get that kind of like cold sort of slightly uncertain reaction from the local old man who might as well be the man at, you know, the petrol pump station and I spit on your grave going, oh, you don't want to go down there. <laughs> and you think, you know, there's all the signposts, but actually the music's quite like, dinky dink. And then it becomes, like you say, increasingly um, horror as it progresses. It keeps its powder dry for such a long time. Like I, I, I can get quite, um, you know, uh, scared during a film, and I'm like, oh, why did I choose to watch this film? I should have watched something nice. But, uh, but this film, I was, you know, I think it's almost an hour in before it really kind of jumps up a notch. Um, but it, there's always this doubt underneath it. But I love how 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 it was able to sort of take you on this journey and sort of keep you guessing for such a long time. You know, is there a monster? Who is that monster? What is the sort of reality here? Because there's an unreliable narrator, as we've mentioned, but I love that she isn't totally unreliable. Sometimes things are true. Other people do see that the mute girl, for example, by that point, I think Jessica's seen a couple of things which may or may not be there. And we think the mute girl might be one of them, but then another character sort of verifies that she exists and they, yeah. they try to talk to her. I'm like, oh, okay, so it isn't as weird as all that, you know? Yeah, it's funny because I'm with Jessica pretty much the whole way through the film in terms of thinking this is supernatural and feeling so heartbroken for her because she's so, you know, in so much self-doubt around her, you know, interpretation of what's going on. There's one moment that makes me question that, and that's when the mole gets killed. And the 
the only reason is because you can hear breath while that mole's getting killed and it sounds so much like Jessica's but I you know knowing Jessica as well as I do (laughs) (laughs) um I just don't think she could do that and then her reaction when she finds the mole is so traumatized and upset I just I don't think she killed the mole, but then I'm thinking, well, did John Hancock use her breath to confuse me or to signify that maybe she isn't, you know, what we think she is? And um, I really don't want her to have killed the mole. Um, and, and it's only over more and more viewings that I've kept thinking, that sounds like Jessica's breath. I really loved it. I also actually love how the mole is clearly not a mole. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think it's a mouse and they they said a mole in the script so they just went for it (laughs) yeah yeah they probably just had to use whatever animal they found lying around the farm (laughs) yeah Uh, it's such an odd detail but the film is full of those odd details which I I think make it you know feel like a a really individual movie Um, you know little character details which aren't hugely important for the story like um, one of the characters having a bass a double bass with him so they can have a jam session early in the film but then the double base case being used later on to sort of store a body inside <laughs> just like little details you didn't need to put it in there but it's added some character to it yeah absolutely those scenes in the kitchen when they're singing those like there there's some of the moments that you just you're kind of going into this headspace of a woman whose relationship is a threat and she's almost dealing with that in the same way that she deals with her mental health problems um you know this sort of jealousy that's coming up in her and the watching the details of the way that they're kind of flirting with each other and being allowed into that I don't think I've seen jealousy on screen in in such an effective way you know um and and again she deals with those things just like when they're out in the lake and um Duncan starts you know rubbing in suntan lotion onto Emily's back and she starts going ooh 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 and Jessica rather than attacking at that moment says okay that's enough and skips out smiling and it's those kind of character moments with her that just make you really feel for her like it's such a heartbreaking film in so many ways and and I think that the the sort of beginning of an end of the film really kind of you know, that monologue that she delivers that just allows you in right from the start of uh, actually maybe you can like edit it into the podcast (laughs) and then I won't have to cite it. But actually, funnily enough, I tried to incorporate that monologue in Censor. It didn't end up, you know, being part of the final film, but there was a scene where Enid watches a film with her colleague Perkins and she's had a strange, oh no, Perkins had had a strange dream the night before. And, and at the beginning of the scene, I wanted them to have that monologue playing that, that was, that was uh, you know, there in the background. And I, and I felt like for me, it was kind of a way in, in a way to, to some of the things I was playing with in Censor in terms of this is something real or is it fiction or is it in my head or is it real? And, and uh Yeah, I was certainly inspired by Jessica in a sense. (laughs) 
I'm really pleased to say that we you know can program. Let's get Jessica to death. We'll, we'll add it in. But you know, as as your your contribution as guest curator, I'd love to get a few more sort of notes uh, from you so we can you know really fulfil your vision at the festival. If you could choose any cinema in the world, any location, where would you like to show Let's Get Jessica to Death? I would love to set up a massive screen with an incredible sound system in like a woods by a lake and screen it outdoors, you know, in a sort of similar setting to where the film has been shot. I think that would be really eerie. And I would love to do a double bill of sensor and let's get Jessica to death as well. That sounds fun. We could put a a hearse maybe on on the set, as it were. People, visitors could walk by the hearse. Maybe the the team, you know, the staff working at the event could have bandages on their necks or wrists as well. And it won't make sense until after you've seen the film. And then everyone can turn to the audience and be like, and chase them out of the woods. You have to leave the screening by boat. That's the rule as well. (laughs) You're, you know, a lot of people say, I, you know, I, I don't like being distracted during a film, but you know, do you like a snack uh, during a movie? And if so, what would be uh, an ideal snack for you at a screening of Let's Get Jessica to Death? Well, you see, I have my traditional cinema snacks. So it would be the same as always, which is a bag of sweet and salty popcorn and a bottle of red wine. <laughs> that's, my, that's what me and my boyfriend take to every cinema outing. <laughs> Uh, I I love that. That sounds delicious. Okay, well let's do that. So everybody who comes can have a bottle of red wine and a and uh, some sweet and salty popcorn. And finally, if you could invite one uh, a special guest, maybe to introduce the film or or do a Q and A afterwards, who would you like to see up on stage uh, along with our screening? Oh, Zora Lampert, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, I I'd love to have had a chance to work with her. I mean, I know she she was still working a few years ago. I don't know if she's still making films now, but yeah, definitely her. I'd love to hear more about the experience of of shooting this and how she got into character and all of that kind of thing. Same here, actually, I'd love, because I watched it on a, a streaming service. I, I didn't get any special features. I'm, I'm sure on the DVD and Blu-ray, um, there must be loads of, and loads of sort of extra bits to watch. No, on my... T- DVD there's no special features actually so yeah I know I don't know what else there is I mean I don't think it was like a a kind of big film when it came out so I wonder if they shot anything as they were making it or if there were many interviews but there was nothing on on mine sadly but that maybe there is on another version or maybe maybe the screening needs to happen then so we can actually you know capture this moment uh, and see the cast reflect on the film i'd love to i'd love to see that okay well i think that brings us uh, to the end i'm really pleased to uh, say let's go jessica to death is in our 90 minutes or less film festival and that censor is in cinemas now not yet officially in the festival but someone hopefully <laughs> in the future will will pick it that'd be good yes now that you know sensors out how how does it feel are you are you excited to watch it with like a you know a public audience go to your local cinema yes i am i i have seen it at the bfi preview screening um at this point in time i i saw it there and that was the first time i saw it finished with an audience and it was amazing but i definitely will be sneaking into some screenings when it's when it's out in in the public I, <laughs> um, because I just I'd love to experience that you know it's my first feature so to go and watch it in a, a normal cinema experience would be amazing thank you so much for talking to us today Prano it's been it's been loads of fun and, and thank you for introducing me to Let's Scare Jessica to Death uh, it's a massive pleasure thanks for having me Sam 
Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.